So I'm very happy that um, Thomas Aquinas College has continued the tradition of Thomistic Institutes. I went to the first um, Thomistic <coughs> Institute that was run by Ralph McInerney probably about 35 years ago. Um, the, that first one was kind of a boot camp. It um, lasted seven days with many papers every day. And it was about 85 degrees in South Bend with high humidity, and there was no air conditioning in the women's dorm, but there were plenty of water bugs in the shower. At any rate, um, what I really remember, though, is the colleagues that I, I met through these domestic institutes, the, the collegial attitude, people that I ended up discussing with philosophy by email or sometimes at other conferences over the years. And some of them are actually here. For example, Steve Jensen, I met at a Thomistic Institute. Um, and a couple other people whose names I can't think of right now, I met at Thomistic Institutes and I've kept in touch with them over the years. So I'm very glad that um, Thomas Aquinas is keeping up this tradition and I'm happy to speak to you. So, Carl Woese, Otto Candler, and Mark L. Wheelis claim that the division they propose for living things into the domains of archaea, bacteria, and eukarya is the natural division of living things at the most universal level, and they explicitly reject the division into plants and animals, which is the division that Aquinas espouses, albeit adding a third category, human. So my purpose is to argue that the division Aquinas proposes is more natural than the one Woese proposes. I will then add some reflections regarding what Aquinas would think about Woese at Ols and division, and then I'm also going to compare um, my analysis of Aquinas to that of other um, recent Thomists. So according to Aquinas, what distinguishes living things from all other things is that living things move themselves. And so you'll find in many places, and I quote, every living thing in some manner moves itself. So every life activity involves self-motion, nutrition, growth, seeing, imagining, and so forth. Now, some life activities are motions in the strict sense, and others are only in the broad sense. Those that are motions in the strict sense involve some kind of imperfection. For example, the animal walking to a watering hole gets closer and closer to the hole without actually being there. And someone who's tanning gets darker and darker without being at the ultimate darkness. Motions in the broad sense are acts of things that are perfect, as is the case of sensing and understanding. The one that sees, for example, sees green, doesn't do so gradually as if partly seeing and partly not seeing, but does so immediately. There's no motion in the sense of a, a, or there is a motion in the sense of a change from going from potency to act. However, this operation does not become more perfect over time. One does not see green any better the longer you gaze at it than from the first moment that you gaze at it. In addition, unlike true motions, which all involve some loss, the skin loses its whiteness when you tan, right? Sensing and understanding involve perfection without any loss. Now, one might object that sensing is not a self-motion because the one sensing does not move itself but is moved by the sensible object. It is true that the sensible object brings the sense into act by the brings the sense into act by acting on the sense organ. However, when the sense is brought into act, the sensing being carries on itself the act of sensing. Something similar goes on in the case of non-living natural things that passively undergo the action of an agent. And so if you think of water being heated by a fire, it's becoming hot, but then if you put an egg in the water, then that water will heat the egg, okay? 
So the difference, though, between the two is that when the sense is brought into act, it carries on an activity that perfects the subject, namely knowing something sensible. Whereas in the case of non-knowing subjects, their actualization by an outside agent only enables them to carry on activities that are perfective of other beings. One might also object that green plants, when they photosynthesize, are activated by light and so are not self-movers. It is true that living things need energy to carry on their life activities. They're not self-movers in an absolute sense. However, they use some of their energy, be it light energy or from the food they eat, to modify themselves, producing new parts of themselves through their internal activity. They're not like clocks and other artifacts which do not use the energy powering them to produce new parts of themselves or to increase the size of their existing parts. Even if artifacts were to do so, it would not constitute a self-motion in the strict sense, as these beings are not substances in the Aristotelian sense, but are collections of substances. If self-motion distinguishes living things from all other things, then the correct way to divide living things into kinds would seem to be based on differences in kind in their self-motions. As Aquinas points out in many places, and I quote, an essential division is always through differences which of themselves divide something common, as having feet is divided by biped and quadruped, but not by white and black, end quote. Living things should then be divided according to their different kinds of life activities. In various works, Aquinas names the division of living things at the most universal level, but he rarely explicitly divides living things. And when he does so, it's not his principal concern. He lists plants, animals, and humans in several places. For example, in the Summa Theologia, he says, and I quote, in the order of things, the living are more perfect than the non-living, and animals than plants, and humans than brute animals, end quote. Aquinas does divide living things in some places, but not with the same precision with which he divides souls. For example, in the commentary on the sentences, he says, and I quote, something is said to be living from the fact that it's able to move itself according to some activity. Whence, even plants are said to live from the fact that they move themselves according to growth, and animals in addition, insofar as they move themselves according to place, and insofar as they move themselves according to sensing. In humans, however, in addition, however, insofar as they move themselves to willing and understanding. So what Aquinas says here is ultimately order to show that human beatitude consists in a kind of life, namely eternal life. While the division he gives is based on living things' life activities, some living things having more than others, he does not make clear here why certain activities are singled out as distinguishing one category from the other. Okay, so it's just kind of like an additive list. There's no principle of division. Now what Aquinas does divide with great precision are living things' souls. This division can serve as a basis for a division of living things insofar as the soul, as formal principle of the living thing, is the more principal part of its nature. The life activities of living things, while proper to and relevatory of their natures, are not their natures. Growing, for example, is natural for a plant, but is not the nature of a plant. As Aquinas frequently notes, action follows being, and I quote, a proper activity belongs to each thing according as it has being, for everything acts according as it is a being, end quote. So living things have their being as living in virtue of their soul, which is their substantial form. So if one grants that form is more nature than matter is, a division of living things according to their natures is a division according to the kinds of souls they have. Now the difference
different kinds of souls that living things have, however, are known through different kinds of life activities. So in the order of knowledge, dividing living things according to their natures, which is primarily their souls, depends on determining differences as to their life activities. Thus, while it's correct to divide living things according to the different kinds of life activities underlying the division, and more fundamental in terms of nature, is a division that's based on the differences in the formal cause of the organisms, that is the soul, from which flow the powers that underlie those activities. But again, the latter is known through the former, at least such are the views of Aquinas who draws from Aristotle's natural philosophy. I think these views are defensible, but doing so is beyond the scope of this paper. Moreover, even if one was to, were, was, was to reject or simply ignore Aquinas' hylomorphic natural philosophy, this would not affect the notion that living things should be divided at the highest level according to differences in kind in their life activities. How then does Aquinas divide the life activities or activities of soul? There are three places where he does so. I'm going to focus on what he says in the disputed question on the soul, as this text is clearer in certain ways than are the other two. And so I quote, It's necessary, however, to consider three grades in the actions of the soul. For the action of the soul transcends the action of nature working in inanimate things. And this happens as to two things, namely as to the manner of acting and as to what is done. It is necessary, however, that as to the manner of acting, every action of the soul transcends the operation or action of inanimate nature. For since an activity of soul is a life activity, and the living is what moves itself to acting, it is necessary that every operation of the soul be according to some intrinsic agent. But as to what is done, not every action transcends the action of inanimate nature." End quote. So living things and moving themselves act in a way that go beyond what inanimate natural things can do. Their self-emotions can go beyond what non-living natural things can do in two ways. In one way, simply by how the living things do what they do, namely by themselves. In another way, as to what they do as well. Plants are in the former category since in carrying on the vegetative activities of nutrition, growth, and reproduction, they do not achieve ends different from those that are realized in inanimate nature. As Aquinas explains, and I quote, for it's necessary that a natural being comes into existence and also those things that are required for its doing so be the body inanimate or animate. In inanimate bodies, this comes about by an extrinsic agent in animate bodies from an intrinsic agent. And the powers of the vegetative soul are ordered to activities of this sort. For the generative power is ordered to the end that an individual is produced in existence. The power of growth is ordered to the end that it acquires a suitable size. The power of nutrition is ordered to the end that's, that it's maintained in being. These things, however, inanimate bodies obtain from an extrinsic agent alone, on account of which these powers of soul are called natural." Unquote. So it's kind of hard to dispute what Aquinas claims here. Non-living natural things grow by addition or accretion from without, as is in the formation of crystals. They do not maintain themselves in existence by transforming materials into themselves. And the generation of non-living natural things involves an external agent, as when water is pr produced from oxygen and hydrogen by a spark, or when you get heavier elements that are being cooked in the, in the stars um, through fusion. Compounds as well come into existence as the result of outside agents acting on some pre-existent matter. By contrast, in the case of reproduction, the parent has to 
perform by some internal activity, has to perform some internal activity for the new individual to be generated, be it to produce gametes, or a new shoot, or a part that will fall off and take root, or the changes necessary for cell division, as is the case of unicellular organisms. Moreover, the new individual completes its development through its own activities. So here you have a kind of obvious difference between what non-living natural things do and what living ones do. So the subdivision plant then includes every kind of organism that only performs life activities that differ from what non-living natural things do as to how they do them. So this would include things like fungi, a lot of bacteria, as well as the more familiar vascular plants like daisies and oaks or non-vascular plants like mosses and so forth. Aquinas then talks about more perfect forms of self-motion. Here it's not just the case that the living thing realizes by its own activity ends that are realized by non-living natural things, but what it does transcends what non-living natural things can achieve, and I quote, there are, however, other higher activities of soul which transcend the activities of all natural forms also as to what is done. Namely, insofar as the soul is apt to be all things according to immaterial being. For the soul in a certain matter is all things according as it is sensing and understanding. There must be, however, diverse grades of this kind of immaterial being. For there's one grade according as things are in the soul without their own matter but nevertheless according to their singularity and individual conditions which are consequent upon matter. And this greatest sense, which is receptive of the forms of individual things without matter, but nevertheless in a bodily organ. However, the higher and more perfect grade of immateriality is the intellect, which receives forms without any matter at all and abstract from the conditions of matter and does so without a material organ." End quote. So Aquinas first refers here to a distinction that Aristotle makes concerning sensation. There's a difference between an animal getting hot and feeling hotness. The animal gets hot because its body changes in a physical way. Feeling hotness, however, is not the same thing as getting hot. In fact, the more the body changes physically, the less sensitive it becomes to the hotness it's feeling. Think, for example, of soaking a foot in hot water. As the foot heats up, one, it becomes less and aware, less aware of the temperature of the water. The reception of an accidental form is termed material when the being acquiring it comes to possess it in the same manner that it exists in the agent acting upon it. For example, water heated by a fire acquires hotness in such a way as to become hot itself. When a being receives an accidental form such as heat in a way so as to become aware of heat, that reception is termed immaterial meaning not in the manner that matter receives a form, for again to receive a form in a material manner would be to become hot. The negation in Aristotle's definition of sensation is a way of getting at the reality that one cannot reduce awareness to physical interactions among parts that lack awareness. Of course, a functioning organ is necessary for sensing, and there must be physical actions, interactions between it and what is sensed. However, that is not sufficient to account for awareness. If one were to explain sight to a blind person solely in terms of all the physical interactions involved, the person would have less understanding of what sight is than if one were to explain it in terms of the subjective experience of awareness of a sensible quality different from those that the blind person is aware of. In the case of intellectual understanding, immaterial is not only to be taken in the negative sense and not in the manner that matter receives, 
but in the sense of involving nothing physical at all. Here is not the place to rehearse Aquinas' arguments concerning the immateriality of the intellect, especially since we had three other speakers talk on that topic. Um, so, but even if Aquinas was mistaken, and consequently there was one fewer main subdivision of living things, this wouldn't show that his principle of division was incorrect. So there's some who reject Aquinas' subdivision plant, maintaining rather that all living things are sentient. As I've argued elsewhere, I think the subdivision plant, understood as non-sentient, is defensible. For one, plants lack sense organs. My main thesis, however, is that Aquinas' principle of division is the correct one for dividing living things at the most universal level. If all living things were animals and no more than animals, then the most fundamental division of living things would be determined according to their activities of sensing, or more fundamentally, according to the sensitive souls that underlie the various kinds of sensorial activities. All right, so let us now consider the division of organisms proposed in 1990 by Woese et al. in a paper entitled Towards a Natural System of Organisms, Proposals for the Domains of Archaea, Bacteria, and Eukarya. So just quickly, archaea are bacteria that live in extreme environments like thermal vents. Bacteria are the things we know, like E. coli, that cause diarrhea and stuff like that. And then eukarya is everything else, everything else, okay? Plants, roses, kangaroos, you name it. So this division was widely accepted by other biologists until recently. So recently, people have proposed a two-domain system, but they, they're basically using the same principle of division as well as at all. What we said all begin by explicitly rejecting a division that's very close to the one that Aquinas favors, and I quote, our present view of the basic organization of life is still steeped in the ancient notion that all living things are plant or animal in nature. Unfortunately, this com comfortable traditional dichotomy does not represent the true state of affairs. Thus, as a prerequisite to developing a proper natural system, we have to divest ourselves of deeply ingrained, cherished assumptions as regards both the fundamental organization of life and the basis for constructing a system of organisms. The system we will de develop will be one that is completely restructured at the highest levels." End quote. Now, Woese et al. never addressed what this ancient division was based on, much less why it's defective. They simply assumed that the only sound basis for a natural taxonomy is phylogeny. Or in other words, that living things should be divided into kinds at the highest level according to their evolutionary origins. And I quote, the only truly scientific foundation of classification is to be found in appreciation of the available facts from a phylogenetic point of view. Only in this way can nat the natural interrelationships among organisms be properly understood." End quote. So classification of living things is to be based on ancestry and ancestry alone. A living thing's ancestry, however, while important for understanding how it came to be as it is and its evolutionary relationship to other things, is not the living thing's nature. So what we said all in keeping with what they regard as the sole goal of classification based their highest level division on the molecules that are indicative of the first major divergences in evolution from the original cell type. They maintain, and I quote, what must be recognized is the basis for systematics has changed. Classical and phenotypic criteria are being replaced by molecular criteria. As Uber Candle and Pauling made clear many years ago, it's at the level of molecules, particularly molecular sequences, that one really becomes privy to the workings of the evolutionary process. 
Molecular sequences can reveal evolutionary relationships in a way and to an extent that classical phenotypic criteria and even molecular functions cannot. And what is seen only dimly, if at all, at higher levels of organization can be seen clearly at the level of molecular structures and sequences. Thus, systematics in the future will be based primarily upon the sequences, structure, and relationship of molecules, the classical gross properties of cells and organisms being used largely to confirm and embellish these." End quote. So always at all regard ribosomal RNA as a molecule important to consider for the determination of phylogeny. Ribosomal RNAs are essential parts of ribosomes, which are organelles responsible for protein synthesis. The RNA polymerase is another molecule they view as helpful for determining phylogeny. The RNA polymerase plays a role in the transcription of DNA into messenger RNA, the latter being necessary for protein synthesis. In general, the determination of phylogenies depends on choosing molecules that are found in all organisms and that evolve slowly. Molecules found in all organisms are going to be involved, and I quote, in the functions that must have evolved early in the cell's history and are basic to its workings, end quote. So it makes sense, right? They're looking at it, you have the original cell, life arises, cells dividing, dividing. Eventually it starts mutating, taking different directions. So how are you going to figure out how those different lineages have, have forked? Well, you're going to look at molecules that you're going to find in everything, right? And you have to look at molecules that are fundamental to the functioning of the cell. And you also have to look at molecules that don't evolve too fast, don't change too fast. Otherwise, you're not going to be able to trace the lineages continually. And so that's what they do. So based on cytological and molecular criteria, Wowies et al. define one of the three domains, namely the domain bacteria, as, and I quote, cells prokaryotic, membrane lipids, predominantly diacylglycerol diesters, ribosomes contain a eubacterial type of RNA, end quote. And their definitions of the other two domains follow a similar pattern. So Wowies et al.'s division, then, is based on differences in molecular parts, specifically those that are needed for organisms to carry on the vegetative activities needed to stay alive, and on the organization of the major components of the cell, such as whether the DNA is enclosed in a nucleus or not. I don't know how they sneak that in, but whatever. Um, the division is not based on differences in kind in the life activities of organisms, much less on differences in the souls underlying those activities. The latter is indeed the most natural, is the basis for the most natural division, as was argued above, then woe is that all's division is not the most natural division of living things at the highest level. All right, so here's some Thomistic reflections on Woe's division. So Woe's again is dividing living things into the three domains based on differences in their bodily composition, whereas Aquinas divides them into three kinds based on differences in their souls. This might make it seem that Aquinas thinks that understanding living things in terms of their bodily makeup is entirely misguided, something we all know is not the case. Rather, he views how one is to understand living things at the most universal level to differ from how one is to understand them at the level of the species. This can be seen from how he divides the part of natural philosophy which treats animate things into its subdivisions in the premium to the commentary on Aristotle's De Sensuis et Sagum. So Aquinas begins by explaining the principle according to which the speculative disciplines are to be divided. And I quote, as the philosopher says in the third book of the De Anima, in the same way that things are separable from matter, so too they stand in regard to the intellect. 
For anything whatsoever is intelligible insofar as it's separable from matter. Once those things, which according to nature are separated from matter, are in themselves intelligible in act, those things which are abstracted by us from material conditions become intelligible in act through the light of our ancient intellect." End quote. So after applying this principle of division to divide the speculative sciences into metaphysics, mathematics, and natural philosophy, Aquinas proceeds to divide natural philosophy into its parts in accord with the same principle of division. And I quote, and just as the diverse genera of sciences are distinguished according to this, that the things they treat are separable from matter in diverse ways, so too in the particular sciences, and chiefly in natural science, the parts of the science are to be distinguished according to the diverse manner of separation and concretion. And because universals are more separated from matter, therefore in natural science one proceeds from the more universal to the less universal, as the philosopher teaches in the first book of the physics, end quote. Now, I don't know why Aquinas turns to the first book of, physics, of the physics, because it seems to me in the first book of the physics, Aristotle is maintaining that the more universal is less separated from matter, it's more confused. At any rate, Aquinas goes on to explain the sense in which what is more universal from matter, what is more universal is more separated from matter, so I quote, once also natural science begins to teach from those things which are most common to all natural things, which are motion and the principle of motion, and then proceeds to the mode of concretion or application of common principles to certain determinate mobiles, of which certain are living bodies, concerning which one also proceeds in a similar mode, distinguishing this consideration into three parts. For indeed, one first considers the soul in itself in a certain abstraction from matter, as it were, Secondly, one considers those things which belong to the soul according to a certain concretion or application to the body, but in a general way. Thirdly, one continues the consideration by applying all these things to individual species of animals and plants, determining what is proper to each species." Unquote. So let's flesh out what Aquinas says about the division of natural philosophy and then of the part of natural philosophy that treats living things. So in the, in the physics, Aristotle treats what's common to all natural things, starting with what's most fundamental, namely motion. So in treating motion, Aristotle speaks about act and potency, about the need for a terminus from which and a terminus to which. What he says applies to all motions while prescinding from what is proper to any specific motion, from iron filings moving towards a magnet or copper turning green. These considerations, necessary as they are for understanding all motions, are not sufficient for understanding the motions of specific natural things in their specificity. Here one needs to examine the matter involved. What holds true of understanding natural things also holds true for understanding the specific kind of natural thing that's the living thing. One needs to first understand them in terms of the most fundamental thing they all share in common, namely the soul, which is their principle of self-motion. However, in order to obtain proper knowledge of the various species of living things, one needs to also look at their matter. Aquinas is insistent on this latter point. It's probably a passage you're familiar with, but I quote. Therefore, their determinations concerning the soul are insufficient when they try to say only what sort of thing the soul is and neglect to show of what sort the body receptive of the soul is. Here they agree with what the Pythagorean myths hold, namely that any soul may enter any body, the soul of a fly may enter into an elephant body. Although this is not possible, since every body whatsoever, 
and above all, those of animals have their own form, their own species, and a proper moving part, and a proper move part. And the body of a worm differs greatly from the body of a dog, and the body of an elephant from the body of a flea. Thus, therefore, Plato and other philosophers, speaking only about the nature of the soul, have spoken insufficiently. By omitting to determine what body be suitable to what soul, and in what manner and how it exists united to the soul." End quote. To divide living things at the highest level, Aquinas would maintain that we must look to their souls considered in a certain abstraction from the body, as the same kind of life activity can be realized through quite different bodies. For example, life activities of vegetative soul that are carried on by, bac are carried on by bacteria and green plants whose bodies are vastly different. Of course, the species falling within each of the highest categories, plant, animal, and human, are understood to have a body with organs, an organized body, right? But the specifics of any given body cannot be part of that division, as this would exclude other organisms that carried on the same kind of life activities, but through a different body. To divide living things into species, however, requires knowledge of the bodies of which these organisms' souls are the act. Note that Aquinas' classification would work for things, living things on another planet, which is not the case for Woewees et al.'s classification. For since phylogeny is what matters for Woewees et al., given that the tree of life of organisms on the two planets would be different, assuming life was not seeded on Earth from the other planet, Woewees et al. could not put organisms on the two planets in the same category. And this would be true even if the organisms had the same ribosomal RNA, because they don't have the same ancestry. All right. Though Aquinas rejects Woewees et al.'s position as far as their division being the most natural, if he were to accept that evolution has occurred, he would recognize their, their division is valuable for understanding living things in two ways. First, it contributes to an understanding of biological evolution. For example, a consideration of ancestry allows us to recognize phenomena such as convergent evolution. An example of convergent evolution is the evolution of cacti and euphorbia. These two groups look very similar and they live in similar climates, but they have different ancestors. And probably most of you, if I showed you a euphorb, you'd say it was a cactus. The fact that evolutionary causes can result in the production of very similar organisms despite differences in ancestry teaches us something about the nature of living things. Secondly, looking at a species ancestry often provides some knowledge concerning the species itself. Aquinas, in his commentary on the politics of Aristotle, speaks of the importance of ascertaining things' origins in order to understand them. Missing a page. Maybe it's here. I don't know. Lost a page somehow. So basically, basically what the quote says is it's it's talking about the importance of seeing things in their origin, and that's how it, it ends. It's, it's like if you're to understand the nature of something, you should look at its origin. And but the examples he gives, he starts talking about the relationship between whole and part. And so he says if you want to understand words, you need to understand the letters. And if you want to understand um, mixed bodies, in the Aristotelian sense of mixed bodies, you have to understand the elements from which those bodies came into existence, right? So 
that might make it seem, because when, when that quote ends, it's very strong, like, if you're going to understand the nature of a thing, you have to see it in its origins and so forth. So it might make it almost seem like Aquinas should go with Boise, but if you think about the examples, in the case of words, understanding the letters is only understanding the material part of the word. The formal part of the word is, is a concept it signifies. And if you think about um, the how mixed bodies come into existence from the elements, those mixed bodies no longer exist in act in the elements, right? They're not even a material part of, uh, the elements are not even a material part of the mixed body. So they're not even part of its nature in any, in any manner, shape, or form. Although knowing something about the mixed bodies does allow us to know something about the thing's nature. Okay, so. As far as then um, it, transferring that now to looking at how Oise is looking at it in terms of ancestry, um, the reason that we have apparently five fingers and toes called pentadactyl limbs is due to our evolutionary ancestry. So maybe if our ancestors had six, we would have six, but way back when, that was five was the number picked on, and so, so but knowing that, it does tell us something about why we have five five fingers and five toes, okay? But it doesn't tell us what's proper to our human pentadactyl limbs, okay? It doesn't tell us the unique structure that our pentadactyl limbs have, nor does it tell what the function is. Because think about it, whales also have pentadactyl limbs, but their pentadactyl limbs are fins, and they serve a completely different function, and they also have a, a somewhat different structure. They're not identical, okay? So it's, it's like, this does tell us something, though. The origin does tell us something about why we have certain features. And I think this is especially true when we think about how Aquinas would talk about the necessity of the matter. So the necessity of the matter is like, if you're going to make a knife, you're going to make it out of a hard material that will hold an edge. But hard materials like iron rust. So you don't choose the iron so it rusts, but it's going to rust, okay? So I think that, Eric, that Aquinas would see then evolution and ancestry explaining certain features in human beings. And I always pick wisdom teeth because, one, they cause problems for a lot of people. And in addition, what they do in a lot of people, I have a lot of Asian friends, is they overcrowd their mouths and then cause major dental problems. Okay, So why do we have those teeth? We don't need them. Our ancestors needed them to, to chew coarse, uncooked foods. Carl Sauter noted that maybe they needed them as spares because they needed more teeth because they fell out. That could be true, too. Okay. But certain things I think evolution can explain about our body in the line of what Aristotle would talk as the necessity of the matter. All right. Now, moving to a different paper. So the first paper I was talking about, about the division, was written by three people. Um, but then, and that was written in 1990, but in 2004, somewhat ironically, Woeweez himself comes out with this paper where he's going after biologists who have taken the path of metaphysical re reductionism. And he says this, empirical reductionism is in essence methodological. It is simply a mode of analysis, the dissection of a biological entity or system into its constituent parts in order to better understand it. Empirical reductionism makes no assumptions about the fundamental nature 
an ultimate understanding of living things. So he does have like a deep desire to really understand the natures of things, okay? He goes on to say, fundamentalist reductionism, on the other hand, is in essence metaphysical. It is ipso facto a statement about the nature of the world. Living systems, like all else, can be completely understood in terms of the properties of their constituent parts. This is a view that flies in the face of what classically trained biologists tended to take for granted, the notion of emergent properties. Whereas emergence seems to, require, seems to be required to explain numerous biological phenomena, fundamentalist reductionism flatly denies its existence. In all cases, the whole is no more than the sum of its parts." End quote. So in light of what he says here, one wonders whether he would reconsider having taken the molecular route rather than looking to emergent properties and formulating the division of living things. Aquinas' approach to dividing living things at the highest level seems to be precisely what Woes is looking for. While it may be unreasonable to expect biologists to have an understanding of hylomorphism and of the notion that the soul is a substantial form of the body, biologists, as Woes notes, should be familiar with the notion of emergent properties. And this is part of what is needed to understand Aquinas' division when the division is put in terms of life activities. What biologists typically regard as emergent properties of living things, sensing, consciousness, imagining, thinking abstractly, and the like, are the activities that Aquinas identifies as transcending those of inanimate natural bodies as to what is done. Now, Aquinas, of course, rejects the notion that thinking abstractly is an emergent property because he holds that it's an activity that doesn't depend on matter. But even on this point, at least some scientists might be convinced that humans are not just one animal alongside others, by starting from an examination of the failure of the attempts to teach non-human animals language, and then proceeding to a consideration of the transcendent character of abstract thought. Aquinas' identification of organisms that transcend the activities of non-living natural things only as the manner in which their ends are realized is readily comprehensible through comparisons, such as how a crystal grows as a well, as opposed to how an organism grows. So actually what I'm saying is in science, you, act, you have those sorts of things. Like they know the difference between growth and what a crystal's doing. They know about these emergent properties that they somehow transcend and simply the material parts. They could be convinced about the intellect if you worked on them a little bit. And what's sort of interesting is that the, uh, we, the intuitive um, analogy we use with like emergent properties. So Aquinas never uses the word emergent properties, but he does use the contrary. He uses the Latin words submersa and what's the other one? Immersa, okay? And he'll talk about the, the forms of non-living natural things as being submersa or immersa in matter, right? So there's a kind of intuition that and even in the naming of emergent properties that's in a certain way very Thomas friendly. I think that Aquinas' division would, of living things would re return the wonder to biology that is lost when biologists drift from methodological reductionism into metaphysical reductionism. Even if a biologist can't always answer the question of what basic kind of living thing he has before him, plant or animal, starting with that question focuses attention on living things as living, rather than as collections of molecules. To this end, it would be good if all biologists had to take a course in animal behavior where they would be exposed to discussions of specific emergent properties of animals, such as mirror self-recognition, tool making, theory of mind experiments, and that sort of thing. 
Even when these discussions don't explicitly speak in terms of emergent properties, they are what's being talked about. Doubtlessly, the specialization generally required to make a living as biologists requires the vast majority of students to focus attention on molecules. But this is not a reason to bypass some study of life where it's more clearly seen. All right, so I'll draw my conclusion, which is short, and then I'm going to make some comparisons with some other contemporary authors that try to defend um, Aquinas' division. Phylogeny is not ontology. That's the conclusion. I wish that, I wish, I wish that quip was mine, that's Christikon's, but phylogeny is not ontology. Aquinas maintains that while acknowledging a thing's origin is helpful for knowing something about a thing's nature, it is not the same thing as knowing its nature. And it is on this point that he disagrees with Boeing's. I'm not the first contemporary author to point this out, and I'm sure if I pose the problem to you, you'd all figure it out within two minutes or less. Okay, but, and, and I'm not also the, the only contemporary author who defends Aquinas' division. There's also Edward Fazer, who I'm sure you're familiar with, and David Overberg, who tries to do both these things. However, what I've tried to do, beyond what they've done, is show why the division of living things at the most universal level is based on the primary division of souls. I've also endeavored to clarify the precise manner in which Aquinas divides souls, namely according to the ways in which the motions that they are the cause of differ from those of non-living natural things. So what Fazer does is basically what Aquinas does in that text I read in the very beginning, he just kind of lists, lists the different life activities. So plants, they do this, and then animals, they, they also sense, and then humans, we also think, okay? But there's no principle of division. Um, and then, moreover, while Aquinas maintains that the essence of life is the capacity for self-motion, by contrast, Oderberg maintains, and I quote, the essence of life is imminent causation. That essence, I claim, is what Aristotelians and Thomists sometimes call imminent causation, and Fazer is in agreement with them. Now, both misconstrued the meaning of imminent, okay? And I have to confess, I, I'm used to misconstrue the meaning of imminent, and then fortunately I was at a Thomistic Institute with Steve Johnson, and he corrected me, so, um, but it's easy to make that mistake. I did it myself. All right, so for Aristotle, an imminent, an imminent activity is an activity which is perfective of the agent rather than of some product resulting from it. Imminent activities are divided against transient activities whose perfection lies in their products. For this reason, Aquinas would disagree with Fazer, who, following Oderberg, attributes imminent activities to plants. And I quote, the mark of a living or organic substance is that in addition to transient causation, it exhibits imminent causation in which the effect remains within the agent and perfects it. An animal's digestion of a meal would be an example insofar as it allows the animal to stay alive and grow, though there are also external or transient effects like excretion of waste products." End quote. Aquinas agrees that plants, unlike non-living natural things, take in, material, take in materials from the outside and through their own activity transform some of these materials into their own substance for their own benefit. However, the activity of nutrition is not of itself perfective of the agent. It is the new flesh produced, and not the activity of producing it, that perfects the organism as a whole. 
An example of an imminent activity is seeing as the activity itself perfects the agent rather than perfecting some product internal or external to the agent. Aquinas does not use the imminent transient distinction when dividing living things because it does not suffice to separate plants from non-living natural things. For all the life activities of plants are transient, as are all the activities of non-living natural things. Another point of disagreement concerns the category animal. Fazer maintains, and I quote, there are sensory substances which possess the basic vegetative capacities, but in addition, three different capacities of their own. The first and most fundamental is sentience, the second is appetite, the third is locomotion. Obviously, these three form kind of a package, end quote. However, as Aquinas noted long ago, there are animals that are immobile, at least in their adult form, such as coral, which glues itself inside its skeleton using its tentacles to feed. Aquinas gives the example of the oyster, which is scientifically accurate. Young oysters move locally for a couple of weeks, but then spend two to three years fixed in the same place. For Aquinas, the presence or absence of locomotion delimits a mode of life. And so here's a quote. The modes of, li of living are distinguished according to the degrees of living things. There are certain in which the sensitive power is found along with the vegetative, but not the power of motion according to place, as is the case of immobile animals such as oysters. Certain indeed have beyond this the power of motion according to place, such as our perfect animals, which need many things for their life and therefore need motion so that they're able to seek the necessities of life that are distant. So for Aquinas, the grades of life where you have plants, you have immobile animals, you have mobile animals, and then you have people. And also when you think about it, if you consider the fact that all of the animals that are um, immobile as adults, I believe all of them, if it's not all, it's probably 90% of them, are mobile when they're young. So mobility is something that belongs to the same organism during different stages in its life cycle. So it can't define a grade of life, it's a mode of life. And with that, I shall end. Thank you.